Hello, everybody. Good evening. Uh, glad you're here. Glad you're here. Uh, take a seat, and uh, we'll get started talking about the Bible and Jesus. So that's what we do here on Thursday nights at church. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus, he's our man. Okay. Well, this evening we are finishing up um, our series in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We spent uh, like eight weeks, a big chunk, uh, walking through the, the book of 1st John. It's five chapters, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. And it's really kind of the, the meat of these three, um, mostly because it's just big <laughs> compared to the other two. Last week, Brian Howard went through the second book, and that, and that book really focused on um, kind of the problem of, of teaching, uh, the problematic teaching that can come up in church, and it, it kind of gave us a glimpse behind the veil, behind the curtain, you might say, of the early church and the things that they had to wrestle with related to teaching. Tonight's letter, we're, we're looking at the letter of 3 John, and it's, we're doing it all tonight. It's only 13 verses or something. It's not very long. We're doing it all. We'll find out. I guess collectively we'll find out how many verses it is as we go through it. But this book, um, this little letter is, is a personal letter written by John to a specific man, um, uh, we think a leader in the church. And, and one of the things that we, we see, uh, you could say a topic within here that we're going to pull out and look at is the problem of personalities, the problem of people. Like within the church, and this has been a thing since the beginning of the church, to even this church today, is what's the biggest problem with church? It's full of people. <laughs> we bring the problems. All of us do. And one of the things I love about Pastor Sean, the senior pastor here at Calvary, if you don't know him or don't come or join us on weekends, he's the senior pastor. He preaches most of the weekends here um, and leads this ministry under the, under the elders who oversee it all. Um, but he, uh, he's said before, talked about how it's a big church. People encounter things that aren't always agreeable, enjoyable. Encounter people that aren't always, always agreeable, enjoyable, um, or reflective of Christ. And, and uh, often they'll come and they'll find him. He always hangs out outside after services to, to be available to anybody who wants to talk and, and to pray and whatever might be needed. And um, often people will come up to him and they'll say, hey, Pastor Sean, I just want you to know your church isn't perfect. And he's usually quite quick to say, I know because I'm here. Of course it's not perfect. I'm here. And I think that's a, a attitude, a heart posture we all ought to take in a way, to recognize that this thing's not going to be perfect because we're here. And so that means we're going to have problems. That means we're going to have conflict. That means we're going to have all sorts of different types of people within it that we're going to have to navigate, that we're going to have to deal with. And so we get a glimpse into the issue of personalities and people within the early church as we read through this first letter of 3 John. So you guys ready to read through it with me? Yeah, always. Okay, great. Woo! Oh, that was loud. Sorry. I'll be quieter. I'll be my gentle voice. All right. At the top. This letter is from John, the elder. Apparently he's old. I'm writing to Gaius, my dear friend, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. 
Some of the traveling teachers recently returned to me very happy by telling me and made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness and that you are living according to the truth. I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. He's talking about children in faith, that they are children in faith, not necessarily biological. Verse 5, dear friend, you are being faithful to God when you care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church here of your loving friendship. Please continue to provide for such teachers in a manner that pleases God, for they are traveling for the Lord, and they accept nothing from people who are not believers, so we ourselves should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. I wrote to the church about this, but Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader, refuses to have anything to do with us. When I come, I'll report some more of the things he is doing and the, the evil accusations he's making about us. Not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do, he puts them out of the church. Dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. Everyone speaks highly of Demetrius, and as does the truth itself. We ourselves can say the same for him, and you know we speak the truth. I have much more to say to you, but I do not want to write it in pen and ink, for I hope to see you soon, and then we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. Your friends here send you greetings. Please give my personal greetings to each of our friends there. What a letter. Ah, I just love how heartfelt it is, but honest. I even love the part where he says, uh, Demetrius, he's a good guy, and you know we speak the truth. It speaks to their character. It speaks to the integrity. It speaks to the relationship that they have here. As one old-time preacher broke down this letter that, that I just read, he suggested that, it, that it's really, uh, for us in the modern church, we can look at it as a tale of three men. Uh, the first is Gaius, to whom the letter is addressed. Another is named Diotrephes, and the third individual named Demetrius. And the suggestion that uh, he makes is that these three men are three kinds of Christians found in every church in every age. And thus, it's practicality and relevance. Relevance. Why is that relevance? Ah, thank you. It's like, it doesn't quite sound right. Has not, the, the practicality and the relevance, that still sounded funny. Did I say it weird again? Anyway, uh, of this letter, it, it matters today. It still is important to us, even though these three dudes are long gone. This personal letter, it still impacts and informs and can teach and instruct us today. So with all of that in mind, um, we're going to look at these three men portrayed in the short letter. And the first one we're going to look at is Gaius, to whom the letter is addressed. So Gaius, he seems to be a church leader, some kind, and it's possible he's one of three Gaiuses that are mentioned in other places in the New Testament. He could be one of those people who, uh, in time, as time went on, now here he is, the leader of a church that John is relating with. He also could just be some other dude named Gaius who had come to know Jesus and follows him and now leads a church. 
because Gaius was a pretty common name, kind of like John was a really common name back then. John's a really common name now, too, I guess. So just like that, perfect analogy. So it could be kind of any dude, but we know, what we do know is that John knows him. John knows him deeply and closely, and and he addresses this letter to him in such a a warm and friendly way. I would venture to say that it appears Gaius himself was a warm and generous man. Because it comes through in the three things John says about him here in these opening verses. So let's look at them. The first, let's look at verse 2. John writes, Dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. What a line. Healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. He's strong in spirit. He's strong in soul, this man, Gaius. You know, maybe a more literal translation would be that you may prosper in health just as you prosper in soul. What a wonderful thing to say to someone. And yet, I think it's maybe possibly telling or or just the reality that many of us, it might be more fitting for that to go the other way, especially young adults, right? May you, I wish your spirit was as strong as your body. I wish your spirit was as strong as your body. And with that thought in mind, I want to pose the question to you. What if you looked physically like you are spiritually? What if you looked physically like you are spiritually? What would you look like? Would you be like a robust, vibrant individual, sturdy, you know, sturdy? Or would you be a weakling, tottering around, affected by gentle breezes, tripping over small stairs, what would you look like? The former is the fruit of loving God. To be strong, to be sturdy, to be vibrant in soul and spirit, to be, to be established, rooted in a way that no matter the wind, no matter the torrent of rain, no matter what comes your way, you are immovable and strong. That comes out of loving God. That comes out of believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for your life and what he instructs us and testifies to through the scriptures. It comes through all these things. Whether it's true about us or not, we know for sure it's true about Gaius. I wish your physical life was as strong as your spiritual life. I want to know Gaius. (laughs) I want to know people like that. I want to walk with people like that. I want to be shaped by people like that. He was a man of spiritual resilience. And probably, like is spoken in James 1, that maturity, that grounding in his faith was brought through trial and perseverance. But what an important and beautiful thing. Continues in verse 3. John continues writing here to Gaius. And he says, Some of the traveling teachers recently returned. And they made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness. And that you are living according to the truth. So the first thing we see about Gaius in what is revealed here as John writes is that he is a man who is strong in spirit, strong in soul. And the second 
is that he's a man of integrity. He's a man of integrity. What impressed John wasn't that Gaius knew the truth, but that he lived it. He is an undivided man, a faithful man. And this is so important. This is such an important trait. Such an important trait. What a wonderful thing that that this faith-filled man had one thing that John just delights in about his integrity. I think it's important for us to linger on integrity. How often do you think about it? Just raise your hand when you've thought like, am I integrous in the last, has anybody thought, am I integrous in the last week? Anyone? Nice. Good. I'm glad to see that. I think this is something we need to come back to again and again, to linger on. Integrity is about honesty. It's about trustworthiness. It's about wholeheartedness. That you are the same person no matter the witnesses to who you are and what you're doing. Be that God alone or the world at large, no matter what it is, you, the values you speak are the values you live. No matter who's there or who's not. Gaius had strength of soul and he had integrity. And integrity and strength of soul are mingled together. In a way, you can't have one without the other. You can't have strength of soul without some integrity, not, without integrity at the heart of it. And the Proverbs are chock full of sayings about the wisdom of being a man or woman of integrity. Proverbs 10.9 says, He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. Proverbs 11.3, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Proverbs 13.6, righteousness guards the man of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. And then chapter 20, verse 7 says, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Like integrity leaves a legacy. It leaves a legacy. And that's a gift that if you ever want to be a parent or you are a parent, that is a gift that is a hundredfold more valuable than all the material gifts you could give them. To give them an example for which they could follow of what integrity looks like, of what it is to be wholehearted, to be undivided, to be sincere and honest and truthful. I'm so thankful that I I see that in my dad. I see that in my grandfather. And I'm so, so thankful for that. And I desire to give that to my son and my daughter. But I also want to desire, I, I want that to be something that Anybody who interacts with me sees. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And that's the reality of being me, I guess. Being you, being human. But we've got to strive. We've got to aim higher. And Jesus will help us get there. In the New Testament, we see the concept of integrity displayed in Jesus. So that, so that even the Pharisees who are like trying to trap him, they're trying to condemn him, and they just like it doesn't even matter. It's so obvious. It's so clear to everyone. They just straight up say like, okay, hey, we know you're a man of integrity. And then they follow on with their attempts to trap him and condemn him and get him to not know what's going on. But they just can't deny it. It's just obvious. Jesus is who he says he is. He does what he says he's going to do. He's honest. And it's just clear he's a man of integrity. And if you're still not convinced of the value of integrity... In Matthew 5, 8, Jesus declares about the pure in heart, 
about, about those who are undivided in heart. They're integrous. That those that are pure in heart, they shall see God. The pure in heart will see God. If you're wondering, Lord, where are you? I'm not saying this is the perfect answer, but I'm saying it's a place to start. It could be one of those places where you got to bring yourself before him and say, Lord, I've been longing to see you. I've been longing to, to, to know you in deeper ways, and it just seems like there's this wall. Is there something that I need to correct? Is there something I need to ask for forgiveness for? Is there a way I need to alter how I'm living? Am I living in integrity? Am I pure in heart? Help me see it so that I can correct it and know you deeper. For us in this room in North America in 2021, integrity is an anomaly. It is scarce. In preparing for this tonight, I found an article that was written in 1991. That was 30 years ago. 1991. About a survey and the subsequent book written by James Patterson and Peter Kim, and they called the book The Day America Told the Truth. The authors uh, put together this survey in a way that it guaranteed privacy and anonymity for all the people who took it. It was a massive survey, huge, across the whole U.S. And, and all the participants knew that, that there's no way anyone could find out their results. And, and they were encouraged, they were called, please be honest, be truthful to a fault as you go through this. And they did. And the results were startling. So startling. The authors conclude the, the whole book by suggesting that, that we have a new set of commandments for America. And they listed these five survey statements that stood out above all the rest. Remember, this is 1991. And these are the five. The first, I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. 77% agreed with that. 77% said, yes, I, I don't see the point in observing, observing the Sabbath. And that may just be education. You know, that might, there might be a part there that's just education, but these other ones, let's keep going. I will steal from those who won't really miss it. 74% agreed with that. I will lie when it suits me so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. 64% agreed with that. I will cheat on my spouse. After all, given the chance, he or she will do the same. 53% agreed with that statement. I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day every five 50% agreed with that. Like, this is our culture. This is the prevailing societal winds. And even though this is 30 years ago, they've continued to blow. And I bet if we took the survey today, it probably wouldn't look any better. It wouldn't look any different. The two things I want to say about all these that if any of these statements reflect your lived reality, 
you lack integrity. Especially if you're a follower of Jesus. If any of these statements reflect your lived reality, you lack integrity. The second is that if any of these statements, maybe they just feel agreeable to some degree. Maybe when you first read it, you thought like, well, wait, and you had to step back from it. Maybe you don't pursue these statements, uh, but you aren't really opposed to them either. There's something about them feels right. I got to suggest that the world has influenced you with ideas that are opposed to God's heart. If you're a Christian and any of these statements sound right, there's a problem. There's a problem. What do you do when you have problems? You deal with it. You address it. Like when you have a headache, do you just like go, ah, man, a headache. Let's keep going. Like maybe that's what you have to do. But usually you go, ah, I've, oh, headache. Oh, that's weird. And then you go through the inventory, right? You're like, did I drink enough water? Maybe I should drink some water. How did I sleep last night? Nap? No. And you like go through it, right? Maybe you're a coffee drinker and you're like, I got to wean off this stuff, man. This is affecting me. Or you've just been like staring at the screen all day. Whatever it is, you go through this mental inventory of like, you recognize headache. Ooh, there's a problem here. And then you think to diagnose it and, and, and change it. How can I make this different? And I want to encourage you as I talk through these, as I hope what kind of comes out is like, if any of these sound right, there might be a problem. That's really all I want to get into your head, that there might be a problem. I think it was the case, I think, I know it was the case for me reading through. I, I had to, there's moments where I had to pause like the, wait, no, yes, this is bad. Like 77% agree to that? What? Wow. But the more humbling thing and the more realistic reality is I can't stand in contempt over that. I had to pause for a moment too. And that's a problem. And I hope you recognize the problem if that was something you had to do, if you have to pause, or if you just straight up live this way. There's a problem. It's time to diagnose it. It's time to think about it. It's time to confront it and change some things. Because God has better things in mind for you. Such better things. For you and for this whole world. Such better things. These don't reflect the integrity that Jesus embodied, nor do they reflect the integrity, the, the unified life that he invites all of us to participate in. Like a life of abundance where individuality, justice, joy, they all flow freely from our security in his love for us. And these kinds of thoughts, these moral justifications are not in alignment with the true moral authority. That's God himself. And he calls us to something better. He calls us to something better. It's called integrity. And it's for our good. It's for the good of the people in your family. It's for the good of society. It's for the good of the world as a whole. So Gaius is a man of integrity. What we see here about Gaius as well is shown more in verse 5 and 6. This is really the warmth of his heart continues, Dear friend, you are being faithful to God when you care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church here of your long loving friendship. Please continue 
providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God. So Gaius, he's pretty hospitable. He's pretty generous. It's a generous thing to show hospitality to a stranger. Someone you don't know, who you inconvenience yourself for so that they may feel and be welcomed and provided for. This uh, hospitality is a generosity of your time, is a generosity of your money, your comfort, your relationships. Like, like you share your family with people, you share your friends with people when you invite them in, and you care for them, and you provide for them. And I think for many of us, it's easy to relegate generosity to just the giving of money, and hospitality to just the opening of your house to others. But that's a legalistic way to justify our abandonment of these virtues on a heart level. Like we can relieve ourselves of the virtue of generosity and hospitality on circumstantial grounds. Like for some of you, the house I live in, it's not even mine, it's my parents. I can't be hospitable. I can't invite people in on my own. Maybe you have roommates. You know, for me, I have kids and, and there's there's just the reality. I have young kids and a wife, and there's certain aspects of that of inviting strangers into my home. I, I want to protect them. And it'd be, it's easy for me to just be, ah, hospitality, you know. I'm justified in not doing it. Because if that's what I define hospitality as, I, I'm missing the point. If you see somebody on the street and you're like, I don't want to give them money because I don't know what they're going to do with it. I think there's a bit of missing the point. If you think you're justified in withholding generosity because of the circumstances of giving money, or if you're justified in withholding hospitality because you don't have a home, or you're not in charge, or there's people you have to protect within, for Christ followers, for all of us with the Holy Spirit, generosity and hospitality are heart postures that aren't limited to actions. And so they're not constrained by circumstances. Like, rather, the circumstances are the medium through which they are expressed. That heart posture of generosity, of hospitality, finds a way to express itself no matter the circumstance. It finds a way. Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus was definitely not materially wealthy or walking around with a big bag of coins. I don't know. That's probably what they had. But he embodied hospitality and generosity in a way no one else in all of history ever has. So what do you have? So you don't have cash, right? Like how many people walk around with cash and you see someone there, but you got a debit card. Like go buy a burrito and pass it off. Like you've got shoes on your feet, right? And you probably got like five more at home. What are you going to do with it? When it comes to hospitality, like you, you, you don't even need a house. You know what probably the most hospitable thing you can do? Wow, I almost fell. The most hospitable thing. And this is actually true even if you had a house. 
You can invite someone into your house and not have a, a, a spirit of hospitality and people know, I'm not welcome here. This is not a place for me. Hospitality is a posture of our heart. So whether you're inviting them into your home or you're just talking to the barista, you can carry that spirit of hospitality into that moment. The most like significant, simple act of hospitality is like, hi, I'm Brian. It's that simple. And you can do that in every situation. But it's the spirit that goes behind that, that God calls us to, that he longs for us all to have, that he longs that the church would embody a spirit of hospitality, a spirit of generosity, where it says that the the world will know you are my followers by your love for one another. If we're not generous or hospitable to others, if we don't carry that spirit to the people, we strangers we've never met within this church, within this place right now, if... Are we really loving? Is the world going to notice? How do we stand out any differently? Hospitality, generosity are not specific acts. They're a spirit we carry with us everywhere we go, and the circumstances don't dictate them. They're expressed through those circumstances, whatever they may be. They find a way through, not because we have to force them, but because they just find their way through. You know, you can be the person who exhibits hospitality of heart to anyone you come across. Even in a short moment, like I said, with a barista or a gas station attendant, or maybe it's a cashier, a person walking by on the street. How many of you are on a college campus right now? Okay, have you experienced this weird phenomena, at least to me it's weird, where you're like walking and you look up and someone's walking towards you and you make eye contact and then nobody does anything except like, oh, and keep walking. It's super weird. You know what's really fun to do is to be proactive about that. Of like, I'm going to break through this. I'm going to say hi to that person. You know, so when they make eye contact, you go, hi, 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 hi. It's super weird. But you know what's really cool? People start to smile. They start to smile. Sometimes it gets weird, but. Generally, people start to smile because you're bringing that spirit of hospitality. Okay, don't be weird about it. I guess I shouldn't like prescribe this. Otherwise, people are going to be like, oh man, all those people who go to that church, they're strange. But you know, it's okay to be weird. It's better than normal. Normal's kind of boring. That's what my mom always encouraged me with. So we can bring it in every interaction and perhaps brighten people's day as much as God's love uh, uh, with as much of God's love as they can tolerate. Like here on Thursday nights, you, you can carry this heart of hospitality, of generosity, when you recognize that this place and these people with whom you may have some level of comfort and some level could be you were here last week and the person who just walked in is here for the first time. You got a little more comfort than they do. And you can be generous with that. You can share it. You can be hospitable and invite them in. You can ask them to sit with you. You can go out of your way to introduce yourself to them rather than demanding that they come to you. Which one of those sounds more generous? Which one of those sounds more inviting and hospitable? That Like, I want to bring you in. I want you to participate in this. And I'm willing to give of myself for that. I'm willing to be lower than you to do whatever it needs, whatever it takes, so that you know you're welcome 
That's the spirit of Gaius, and it's a powerful one. Hospitality and generosity are the heart postures characteristic of those who follow Jesus, and they are implementable in every situation and every relationship. And so that's Gaius, the faithful one, full of integrity, strong in spirit, more so than his body could ever be, that mortal body, and generous and hospitable to his brothers and sisters in Christ, even though he never met before. And John encourages him, as we should encourage those within our church and others who exhibit Christ-like qualities like this. The passage continues in verses 7 and 8, and we read, For uh, this is referring to those teachers that are traveling, who he was showing hospitality to them. He says, For they are traveling for the Lord, and they accept nothing from people who are not believers, so we ourselves should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. And then it continues in verse 9. I wrote to the church about this, but Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader, refuses to have anything to do with this. When I come, I will report some of these things he is doing and the evil accusations he's making against us. Not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do help, he puts them out of the church. Diotrephes, man. Stories like this, I think it's really easy for us to think we're better than him and be like, ah, oh, that guy is terrible. Diotrephes. How dare he? Yes, condemn him. Ah, uh, I hold him in contempt. He's terrible. Right? Like, it's easy to do that. But that's not, I think, the point here for any of us. All right, uh, the point here is to see this and, and to be like, Diotrephes, like, oh, man, Jesus, help him. Help him see. Help him see what's going on. Help him turn. Lord, this is not good. Lord, protect people from this destructiveness, including him. Lord, I know what it's like to be in that place, to think those ways. Lord, I, I'm not above this. I'm not above it. Diotrephes. He's a man from a sister church whom Gaius must have known in some regard. And, and he, he may have been an elder or a deacon or perhaps a pastor. It's difficult to tell. But, but what was clear is he's someone who had some sort of authority, or at least he took some authority. And uh, he was kind of a jerk. He perceived his role in the church to be that of telling everyone else what to do. And the early church apparently had some kind of membership. And Diotrephes... If he didn't like somebody, he would scratch their name off the list and kick them out of the church. Understandably, John objects to that. He objects to that, along with a couple of other things seen in Diotrephes, attitude and actions. And one of those is in verse 10. We see that he objects to the fact that, that Diotrephes is slandering, making evil accusations about the apostle, about the apostle John. In other words, he's like refusing the authority of the apostle, even slandering him to others. And this is a big deal, because like John's an apostle. It's a really big deal, but also because he's just a brother in Christ. In Ephesians 4.29, we read, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
He's, a sl- he's slandering, and John's like, that's not, this is inappropriate. This isn't how we operate. Second, uh, Diotrephes refused to welcome the traveling ministers, and he went so far as to put the people out of the church who would have taken these men in. Today, we could call this secondary separation. He not only objected to the men who came, but he objected to those who would have received them. And this is a tendency we all know very well. To refuse fellowship to someone who likes someone you don't like. It's clearly alive and well today. And the divisiveness that we see of it inside and outside of the church, it's not new. And unfortunately, it's not going to go away so long as the power of sin holds sway over the hearts and minds of his church. The church will have cantankerous, divisive people within it because the world has those sorts of people. But don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged by that. Because it's also got people like Gaius. And it's got people like John who's coming in to speak into these things, to correct Diotrephes, to try and bring him in a way that, that he might live in life and good things Glorious things. For us, it's not for us. At least it doesn't have to be. As God's children, as his people, we're called to be peacemakers, to be people of unity, and to be gracious with one another. That's what we're called to. So Diotrephes, he's slanderous, he's unaccountable, he's abusive of power, he's divisive. But of those three, none were as severe as the first one that John lined out. The most serious problem Diotrephes had was he put himself first. He loved to be the leader. He loved to have preeminence, which is a dead giveaway that someone's acting in the flesh. This is always the philosophy of the flesh. Me first. Me first. Diotrephes is robbing the Lord Jesus of his privilege. It is he who has the right to preeminence. He should be first. But here is a man who put himself first, and that's just straight-up treachery. A kind many of us live out in our day-to-day lives. And unfortunately, there's lots of men and women, like Diotrephes, in the church today. And they're always characterized by this attitude that they want to be first. They want part of the glory. They rob God of his inheritance. They steal that which alone belongs to the Almighty, and the essence of this is pride and idolatry. You know, I can be clear and honest that this has been me in moments and in seasons. In much, in like veiled ways, you know, I'm not like straight up like, I want to be in charge. I want to be seen. But how often, how easy it is to come up here and be like way more concerned about like, Lord, what are they going to think of me? Am I going to do a good job? And to make it all about me. And in a way, rob the Lord of what this is all really about. We said it many times in this ministry. This stage, this building, me, I'm expendable. So is all this stuff. I'm not central to what God is doing here. This stage, this building, it could all burn down. And the church still exists. Our call, our mission has not changed. The things that God intends to do in us and through us, the power that we have, the ability that we have to change this world, to impact people for Jesus, none of it's it's been lost because we still have God. 
This isn't about me. This isn't about Sarah. This isn't about anyone else. It's about him and him only. That's what Diotrephes got wrong. And so what we often have to pull ourselves back into that place of, wait, this isn't about me, it's about Jesus. This isn't about me, it's about Jesus. So John mentions Diotrephes to Gaius, and he mentions the attitudes, the behaviors that Diotrephes is displaying that are so unbecoming, they're so unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. And what is John's counsel to this situation? What should be done about it? Well, notice he doesn't advise Gaius to organize a split between his church and Diotrephes. Rather, he says in verse 11, Dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember what those who do good prove, that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil, evil prove that they do not know God. In other words, don't follow these men who want the preeminence. If you see somebody who is always jockeying for position, in Christian relationships, in Christian organizations, in any organization, always wanting to be in the public eye, don't follow them. Don't follow them. Because they're following their own way and not that of God. My dad once told me that the best people, the best leaders, are the ones who are capable but don't want it. And the ones that you've got to be weary of are the ones who clamor for it who scrape and do everything they can to get it. The best leaders are the ones who are capable of it, but don't necessarily want it. So, it continues, and and we get into this third man, uh, Demetrius. And Demetrius is a traveling missionary and probably the courier of this letter. And it says in verse 12, everyone speaks highly of Demetrius, as does the truth itself. We ourselves can say the same for him, and you know we speak the truth. Uh, Earlier in verses 7 and 8, we kind of get an outline of of what Demetrius did. He's a missionary. He goes around. He doesn't charge uh, anyone who he's serving for for them to provide for him. He he trusts the Lord as he goes, that that the people of God will provide as he goes to try and bring the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. Missionaries, we get that. We know that. We have context for that. And here we have this man that has spoken very highly, and that even the truth speaks well of him. He's devoted himself to the spread of the gospel, not taking money or support from those he's seeking to share it with. And after all, after all, it's just given freely, right? The gospel's free. So he must be a man of great faith, a man of courage to trust the Lord and others to provide for him both food and shelter, but also a means for carrying out his calling. Demetrius withheld the stage from him. He withheld the church from people like, or sorry, Diotrephes withheld that from people like Demetrius. He had to entrust himself to others. He had to, how many of you go to work or go to school and you think like, you have any thought that someone's going to keep you from doing what you're supposed to do? That you're going to have to trust others to accomplish all the things you have to do. He had to do this every day, saying, Lord, I'm trusting you that you'll provide the way and also that your people will provide a way. That they'll open the door to the thing you're calling me today. That, that I won't be just beating my head against a wall. 
He must have had great faith. He must have had great courage. I think so many of us in the room see obstacles. You see obstacles when you have, you have a vision of living for the kingdom of God and, and, and you just see the obstacles. You don't have that job yet. You don't, you, you don't have, you're not like almost married or something. You, you, it just, there's just obstacles. You've got debt. You've got um, any number of things that could be these obstacles. So you grumble and you complain about them. I love Henry Ford's quote on obstacles. He says, obstacles are those frightful things you see when you take your eyes off the goal. Demetrius was a man of courage, looking past obstacles to the goal and pressing ahead in faith, embracing the adventure, the adventure of life and service to the king. Like one, one little obstacle, you know, that's actually what makes adventures. Like obstacles are actually what make adventures. Mystery and obstacles. You kind of have to have both to have an adventure, right? Mystery and obstacles. Is that not life? And is that not probably the thing that most of us rebel against and complain about and grumble about? Like, I don't want an adventure. I want easy. I want comfort. I want control. I want to know what's coming next. I want it to be what I want it to be. But God calls us into this amazing thing, and it's an adventure. The adventure of looking past the obstacles, of of in some way, believing beyond the mystery, beyond the darkness, that God is going to be with me and he's going to lead the way. And he's going to provide the way. God wants to take us on a great adventure through the mysteries and obstacles of your life, of your call. We only have to have faith that he is leading us, that his timing is right, that he will comfort us as we go, that he is with us. Now, even in the dark and painful things, he is there. He is there. And that the adventure is not over yet. You don't put your foot in a big thing of mud and, well, now the adventure's over. I got mud in my shoe. No, the adventure, that's just a part of it. Now, now how do I continue with a muddy shoe? What's that going to look like? How are you going to lead me through this, God? What are you going to do with that? Maybe you have a plan. I'm excited to see what it is. I don't like it. I don't like a muddy shoe. But I trust you. I trust you. Such was the courage of Demetrius. Such was his faith. John closes his letter with these very personal words. And um, band, if you guys want to make your way up. Verse 13, he says, I have much more to say to you. He's writing to, Demet- uh, to Gaius again. But I don't want to write it with pen and ink, for I hope to see you soon. And then we will talk face to face. When reading through this letter this week, um, I've continued to linger on verse 14 here. I don't want to write it with pen and ink, for I hope to see you soon. And then we'll talk face to face. 
The beauty of this heartfelt and earnest love that's displayed in that sentence is the longing to see the other person face to face. And the patience and the wisdom to reserve some ideas, some topics of conversation for the more meaningful and joyful reality of being face to face with your brother, with your sister, with your friend. And the prudence to to value the power of face to face relationship by holding something back from this current medium of relationship, writing a letter, for a more encompassing one face to face. It's to value the relationship and the power of being truly together with someone. You know, I don't currently spend a whole lot of time on social media, um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Some are like intentional reasons, intentional decisions I've made. Some of them are just like I have two kids that are really young, and I don't, I I just, I ain't got time for that. (laughs) Like, I just don't. But something I've learned over this recent season of not really being on social media much is, is actually how wonderful it is that I don't find out about like big life events through this impersonal means. Like, like to get a, con- a phone call with a friend and, that I haven't talked to in months and be like, wait, what? Your wife's pregnant? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And to be able to like engage over that is so much different than seeing a post and clicking like. Like the relational aspect of that is so different. And, and yes, I found that I, I don't like, there's a lot of things that end up happening that I just am not, I had no idea. It's like, oh, what? They've been dating? How long has that been going on? Wow. You know, and everybody else is like, yeah, duh. Like, they're probably going to get engaged soon. I'm like, oh, I just found out they were dating. Wow. That's cool. So I miss out on some things, but there's also some things that are just so beautiful and powerful about actually getting to engage with people personally beyond this medium. And maybe there's some things in your life that might be worth withholding, not posting. Or maybe you see something that someone else posted and maybe it would be more important to recognize the value of coming to somebody face to face. And in this day, that might actually be like voice to voice. We got phone calls, right? And instead of clicking like, instead of just posting, so happy for you, or I'm so sorry for your loss, like pick up the phone and say hello. Go over to their house and knock on the door. Anybody grow up in a neighborhood where you did that? That was awesome, right? It's still awesome. It can be kind of weird, but it's awesome. When you just show up at somebody's house and you're like, hi, I just wanted to say hi, I was in the neighborhood. That speaks something of value, of a desire to truly connect in ways that are deeper than the ways that are easiest. It speaks of hospitality, it speaks of generosity, that you're willing to put yourself in a place where you might be uncomfortable. They might not be home, I don't know. Maybe they're home and you're like, oh, (laughs) but it's worth it. Maybe you pick up the phone and you're like, I have no idea what to say. I have more time to like think about what to say when I post it, right? Well, you're inviting them into that awkwardness, that vulnerability of actually knowing you, not just the well-prepared things you do, but actually knowing you. As a 
again, as I was reading, um, I came across uh, a phrase, that uh, a paragraph, actually, that the, a man wrote specifically related to this last sentence. And I think it's really important. He writes this. What an intimate end to this little letter. It seems as though it came not only from John, but from the Lord himself. I I like to read this letter as if it's reflecting what the Lord Jesus is saying to his own church, to me. It's like he's really saying it to us. There's much that I'd write to you about. There's much I'd like to say. Uh, He's written a whole book, right? We got the Bible. But he has much more to tell us. And in his kindness and in his longing love to, to be with us in fullness, he says, but I'd rather not write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we'll be face to face. Like Jesus wants to be with us. And there are mysteries, there are mysteries we have yet to see and embrace. And a part of that is God's love for us. It's his patience that he says, oh man, I could dump it all on you now. But I just, I just want to get to see your reaction. I just want to be there face to face with you. So he writes these things in the scriptures, but he also uses the Holy Spirit. But also there's a day when we get to be there unveiled right before him. And he's still got more to tell us. Like, what a cool thing. There's still more of Jesus to know. There's still things he has yet to speak to us because he just wants a better medium to show it to us. Heaven's going to be rad. You know, um, one of the things that we do um, to try and facilitate, that's the best word, facilitate uh, us caring for one another, engaging with each other is the prayer wall. Uh, A place where people can, um, where you can, write out a prayer and put it on there and know that there is a team of people who give of their time, give of their heart to pray over all of those prayers throughout the week. So I want to encourage you, I want to invite you, if there's something that you need prayer for, that's an option is to write it on there and know that there are people praying for that. But also, you probably came here with someone. Or if you didn't, you might be sitting next to someone or close enough to someone. Where if you need prayer over something, you can ask. And you can just say, I don't, if this is weird for you, you can just say, this is weird for me. Invite them into that reality. And if you're sitting there and someone asks you, I need prayer, and you're like, I don't even know what to do with that. Just say that. Invite them in to who you really are. Don't put on a facade. Don't put on some show. That's not what God calls us here for. He calls us to come together and be a people who actually love one another. And you can't love people you don't know. And they can't love you if you don't show yourself truly as you are. That's the thing that Gaius so clearly did. He was a man of integrity and was beautiful. Let's be that kind of church. A church that is vulnerable and honest, full of integrity, full of generosity, full of hospitality. 
And that in doing so, God may make us a church where our souls are way stronger than these mortal bodies. And that'd be a beautiful thing. Let's stand, let's respond and worship to the Lord.